0: Good evening, we're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, this, this of course is Jesus' letter to the church in Sardis. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, Thus says the one holding the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you are holding a reputation that you're alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains, the things that are about to die. For I have not found your works to be complete in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember how you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you certainly will not know at what hour I will come against you. But you do have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. The one who overcomes in this way will be clothed in white. And I certainly will not erase his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The one who has an ear must hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Let me pray for our time together. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we thank you for your living and active word. We pray as we have opened it and we have set our eyes upon it, you would illumine our minds and you would soften our hearts. Help us, Lord, to receive this word even now. And by your spirit, Lord, help us to obey and keep it. For your glory and for our everlasting joy, we pray, amen. She knows she's not dead, but she has to prove it in court. This is a true story I came across on theguardian.com. The trouble officially began on November 12th, 2017, when the 54-year-old Frenchwoman, Jeanne Puchan, opened the electric gates to her home. It was two bailiffs who turned up with a recorded delivery letter addressed to Pierre Jean, her husband. And she had no idea that she was signing for a document announcing her own death. The letter informed her that a lawyer in a court case relating to her cleaning business had told the court that she had died, aged 53. In February 2016. And somehow, this unverified claim, there was no official death certificate. How could there be? She wasn't dead. Somehow, this was allowed to go unchecked and unchallenged. And as a result, Pushan's name has been erased from the official records, invalidating her identity card, her driver's license, her bank account her health insurance, and other official documents necessary to prove her existence. Pouchon has spent more than five years engaged in an existential battle to prove to the French authorities what remains obvious to all, her friends, her family, her neighbors, that she is very much alive. I will keep biting, she says, because I have to. The letter to the church in Sardis is no less shocking and horrifying than the one handed to Pashan at her front door. Verse 1, the one holding the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your works, you're maintaining a reputation, you have a name, that you're alive, but you are dead. That announcement should startle you because it's meant to. Jesus wants the church to pay close attention to what's being said in the rest of the letter. But before we get into it, I want to just prepare you a little. This letter is, it's a somber warning. Especially the first half, it's it's rather horrifying. But, This letter is also fundamentally gracious. Jesus doesn't just announce the church's death and then walk away like the two bailiffs in the case of Pushan. No, Jesus calls this church to live and then provides everything she needs to persevere onto everlasting life with him. It is a gracious letter, and it's not only a gracious letter to First century church in Sardis, but it's intended for all the churches in every age, even our church, Sovereign Grace. And by way of implication, it's a gracious letter for every individual that makes up our church, even you and me. Verse 6, the individual who has an ear must hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So what is the Spirit saying to us through this letter. Here's the big idea. As true believers in Christ Jesus, we must overcome spiritual sleep and we will be rewarded on the last day. That's the message of the letter to the church in Sardis and that's what the Spirit is saying to us even now. If you're a true believer, if you have been made alive In Christ, by faith, you must overcome spiritual lethargy. You must overcome spiritual sleep. Spiritual naps, if you will, are not an option. At least they're not a safe option. So if you have dozed off, spiritually speaking, don't press the snooze button because it just might kill you. You must wake up, and you must stay up, and with the energy that God supplies, we are encouraged and called to live, to live for the reward promised to those who overcome. So we can break this down into a twofold action to be taken. So these are kind of the two main points, if you will. First, overcome. Overcome spiritual sleep. And second, live for the promised reward. So first, overcome spiritual sleep. According to verse 1, the church in Sardis maintains a reputation. So nominally, they're alive, but they are in fact dead. Now, in light of, of verse 2, which we'll, we'll get to in a second, I take this announcement of death to be hyperbole or a a figurative overstatement. The church in Sardis is considered a healthy church by many people, probably including themselves, but in reality, the majority of these members are virtually lifeless. The church is all but dead. And so, in verse 2, Jesus says, Wake up and strengthen what remains, the things that are about to die. For I have not found your works to be complete in the sight of my God. All hope for this church is not lost. But the danger of imminent death is nonetheless real. Real. If they don't wake up and strengthen the embers of life that remain, they are as good as dead. Although their works or deeds have gained the approval of man, Jesus graciously informs this church of the inadequacy of their works. And they're inadequate because they don't measure up to the standards of God. And that's concerning, isn't it? Because it's God's judgment that ultimately matters. He is the final judge. And as Second Corinthians 10.18 says, his judgment of a man or a woman is not dependent upon the man's opinion of himself, but on God's opinion of the man. And in the case of the Sardinian Christians, their works are incomplete in the opinion of God. So what's the problem? What are they doing? Or maybe we can ask it this way. What's the formal cause of their sleep onto death? Well, frankly, we can't be entirely sure because the letter doesn't really specify a formal cause of their precarious condition. But I do have reason to suggest that it has something to do with they're witnessing to their trust in Jesus Christ. They live in a fundamentally non-Christian society, one that is heavily influenced by the Roman imperial cult at this time, and as well as other pagan religion. We're also told by many historians and archaeologists that Sardis has at this time a rather large Jewish community, that somehow enjoys considerable wealth and prestige among their pagan peers. And I think it's worth mentioning the Berkat Haminim, which could be translated the blessing of the heretics, which is the 12th of 18 benedictions, constituting the core of the daily prayer service in the Jewish synagogues from the first century. And this is what it says. This is what they would pray every day, three times a day. Let there be no hope for the apostates, and may the kingdom of arrogance be quickly uprooted in our days, and may the Nazarenes, who are they, those who follow Jesus of Nazareth, may the Nazarenes and the heretics perish quickly, and may they be erased from the book of life, and may they not be inscribed with the righteous." So, to be a faithful Christian in this society, at this time in history, is no advantage if the goal or the aim is earthly prestige and comfort. So, in order to avoid being ostracized or excluded or maltreated, these Sardine Christians seem to be maintaining a low Christian profile so as to maintain a relatively comfortable life in the midst of an unbelieving and perhaps anti-Christian world. You probably noticed that the letter doesn't mention anything like false teaching. It doesn't mention sexual immorality. It doesn't mention idolatry like some of the other letters. And maybe that's because the church in the large part is not really struggling with these things. Maybe Perhaps they're living relatively moral lives. Perhaps they believe sound doctrine and even refute those who contradict the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Perhaps in their private quiet time, they regularly enjoy the most devoted devotionals ever devoted. Even so, the Spirit says to this church in Sardis through the words of Jesus Christ, You're dead. Now, just to be clear, I would not say that about Sovereign Grace Church. And uh, I think we can give thanks to God for that. I wouldn't say that about Sovereign Grace Church. On the whole, I, I do think Sovereign Grace Church is very much alive. But I'm not God. And our elders are not God. And I can't see and they can't see the way God sees. But I do know that Satan and the flesh and the world are continuously Working against God and against God's people. So, I wouldn't be surprised if a number of you have succumbed to the sinful temptation to just kind of fly under the radar, as it were. You're loosely associated with Jesus and his church in that you attend the gathering regularly, you participate in the Lord's Supper, you may even serve the rest of us in some capacity. You may be a relatively moral person. You may have the right doctrine. And yet, over the years, you have grown spiritually lifeless. And you're just coasting through this life as a so-called Christian, bearing no witness whatsoever to your so-called trust in Jesus because it's too costly for you. wake up. Wake up and strengthen what remains. In verse 3, the letter provides the solution to spiritual lethargy and followed by the danger of not waking up. And so I think it's appropriate here to go against the flow of the text. And I want to start with the danger. Look at me, the second half of verse 3. Jesus warns the spiritually lethargic, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief And you certainly will not know at what hour I will come against you. If you're refusing to wake up, you just might be spiritually dead. And if you are spiritually dead, you are in for a rude awakening. Jesus is returning to judge the world. And with the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, he is going to come against all his enemies, including those Who have a reputation for being his friend. Loose association with Jesus and his church is not enough. As king, he deserves and demands total allegiance. And if you genuinely trust in him as your Lord and as your Savior, then he has called you to be his faithful witness even if it means losing your life. We're told in Mark chapter 8, verses 35 through 38, that during his earthly ministry, Jesus summoned the mass of people that were following him, along with his chosen disciples. And Jesus makes this announcement. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and then forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. And to be sure, the coming of the Son of Man will catch many off guard since the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. I don't know, not all of you have a memory of this, but like the attack on 9-11, The terror of Jesus' judgment will come suddenly and unexpectedly upon the spiritually dead. And they will be the objects of his righteous wrath, regardless of their profession and regardless of their reputation. What's the solution? How do I wake up? How do I overcome my sinful inclination towards self preservation at the expense of Christian witness? Jesus provides the solution in the first half of verse three. So look there with me. Therefore, remember how you have received and heard and keep and repent. As Christians, we need to continuously. Remind ourselves of the ways by which we heard the gospel and so received the faith once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, reflect on your conversion. Both the means that God used to bring that about and the effects that it had on you. If it wasn't for hearing if it wasn't for hearing the word of truth and receiving it by faith, you would still be in darkness. You would still be in bondage to Satan and to sin. You would still be destined for hell, because God justly requires His creatures to love and obey Him perfectly. If it wasn't for hearing and receiving the gospel by faith, you would not be forgiven of your sin. You would not be an, an adopted child of God. You would not know God in a saving way, you would not have God in a saving way. And as Christians, we must never forget what we have in the gospel and we must never forget how we received it, namely through hearing. In addition to the act of remembering, Jesus is calling lethargic Christians to repent and to continuously keep or obey his word. To repent is to turn, to change direction. If you're going about your so-called Christian life prioritizing your health, prioritizing your comfort, prioritizing your bank account, prioritizing your reputation, prioritizing your likability... Prioritizing your life. Prioritizing your family. At the expense of being a faithful witness to Jesus Christ and the gospel, you need to change direction. You need to turn. You need to repent and continue to obey the word of Christ that you received and heard. Because unless you wake up, he will come suddenly. And unexpectedly, King Jesus has called his church to be his witness in this dark and unbelieving world. But this is not something we're able to do in and of ourselves. And so he not only demands our allegiance, but he also gives everything we need To trust and obey him. He is the one, verse 1, who's holding the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. The seven stars, you'll remember from chapter 1, verse 20, symbolize the angels of the churches who represent the churches in the heavenly realm. That Jesus holds these heavenly representatives in his hand, I think, further symbolizes his sovereign control. Over the churches on earth. And as for the seven spirits of God, they symbolize God's sevenfold spirit. That is, the one spirit of God in all of his limitless perfection and power. And that Jesus holds him in his hand communicates to us, does it not? That he is able to give us the supernatural power that is needed to revive our soul. Contrary to popular opinion, the power is not in you. The power is from him. The power is him. And as those who have heard the gospel and received the faith once for all handed down to the saints, we must overcome spiritual sleep. And we must overcome the sinful temptation. It's there. To prioritize self preservation at the expense of being a faithful witness to our faith in Jesus. And we can do this. We must do this by the power of the Holy Spirit who proceeds from His hand. In addition to overcoming spiritual sleep, this is the second point, it'll go by a little bit quicker. Jesus is calling his people to live, to live for the promised reward. On the whole, the church in Sardis is moribund. They're at the point of death, as it were. But according to verse 4, there's a faithful few in Sardis. And Jesus publicly commends these faithful, exemplary Christians because they are truly living. Truly living by faith in Christ for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So look there with me at verse 4. But you do have some people in Sardis who have not defiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white. Because they are worthy. Jesus considers these Christians to be worthy by virtue of keeping their clothes unstained by the world. Despite all the external pressures from a pagan and anti Christian society, these faithful few are overcoming the sinful temptation to prioritize worldly comfort rather than witnessing to Jesus and the gospel. And they're keeping in mind, aren't they, what they have heard and what they have received. Even when faced with death. And they're obeying their benevolent king who died for them. And so Jesus considers them worthy. Worthy of walking with him in white in the new heavens and the new earth. We're given a glimpse of that day in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. We're not going to read it. You don't have to turn there. But what you'll see there is a great multitude, which no one can count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And palm branches in their hands, and they are crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And we're told that those who are clothed in white robes are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, and they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And in Revelation twenty two fourteen, it says, Happy, happy are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. To be sure, the white robes, which symbolize purity and in, in righteousness, are necessary for entrance into the heavenly city. But make note of this, they are made white, not by merely human works, but by the blood of the Lamb, who is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The righteousness that you need to be with God in eternity is accomplished and applied to you by virtue of Christ's substitutionary death And his resurrection from the grave and this gift of righteousness is received by faith alone. But make note of this as well. Saving faith is never alone. If you've been made alive and so trust in Christ for your salvation, you will stay awake. And you will keep Your garments unstained. And you will do this by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And you will be rewarded on the last day. So look with me at verse 5 as we consider this promised reward. The one who overcomes in this way will be clothed in white. And I certainly will not erase his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, the phrase book of life. This is used a total of six times in, in John's apocalypse, and twice it's identified as the Lamb's book of life, which I think indicates that this book is possessed and guarded by Jesus Christ. We are told in Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven that only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will enter the heavenly city. Twice we are told that everyone whose names are not written in the book of life will turn out to be willful worshipers of the beast. I'm not going to define the beast right now, but it's not good. And they will be thrown in the lake of fire. And finally, perhaps this is the most startling, two of these references indicate that the names in the this book, have been written from the foundation of the world. The Lamb's Book of Life, then, it's a metaphor for the saints whose salvation has been determined before history began. And therefore, when Jesus promises the overcomer, I certainly will not erase your name from the book of life, that's an ironic understatement. It's a rhetorically emphatic way of saying, I most certainly will keep you, and you will receive the blessing of salvation. The last part in verse 5 recalls to mind what Jesus said to his followers during his earthly ministry, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. There's coming a day, and now is, when the heavenly court will be in session, as it were. And like Zechariah's vision of Joshua the high priest in the book of Zechariah, chapter three, verses one to five, you're standing before Yahweh. And Satan is at your right hand accusing you before God day and night. And what's remarkable about Satan's accusations is that they're all true. In and of ourselves, we are unrighteous before a holy God and overlaid with the filthy garments of our own iniquity. But Jesus Christ died for sinners. And his death was sufficient. And if you've been made alive and so trust in him, all your transgressions are forgiven. He has taken away the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against you, having nailed it to the cross. And on the day that's coming, and now is, Jesus himself removes your filthy garments, and he clothes you with white robes of righteousness, made white by his own blood. And then he rebukes Satan, opens the book of life, and confesses your name, which was written in that book before the foundation of the world, before his father, and before the holy angels. Brothers and sisters, what are you living for? The reward promised to those who overcome spiritual sleep is infinitely greater than we can possibly imagine. Imagine. And it's certainly greater than whatever we might gain by suppressing our Christian witness. We must overcome spiritual sleep and we will be rewarded in the last day. And yes, even now. Let me leave you with the words of the Lord Jesus from the book of Revelation, chapter 16, verses 15. Behold, I am coming like a thief. The one staying awake and guarding his clothes is happy. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this somber warning. But we thank you that it is not just a declaration of death and hopelessness. But, Lord, you have given us this word in order to call us to life, to call us to live. And you've provided all that we need in your spirit, to do what you're calling us to do. Help us, Lord, to be faithful witnesses even when faced with death. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.